You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 29th of January 2020 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View. Coming up today... I don't think Trump really cares whether this is going to be accepted or, or, or not. It is pure election politics. My guests Oscar Guardiola-Rivera and Robert Fox will explore Donald Trump's Middle East peace plan and whether it has any chance of success. And are we really surprised with a new survey that points to a widespread dissatisfaction with democracy? We'll also ask why the head of the UK's public broadcaster is saying interviewers should be going easier on politicians. Plus... The British Fashion Council has estimated that a no-deal exit, switching from EU to World Trade Organisation rules, would cost the UK fashion industry between 850 million and 900 million euros annually. The latest opinion from our editorial floor. I'm Paul Osborne. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined today by Oscar Guardiola Rivera, Professor in Law at Birkbeck College, and by Robert Fox, Defence Editor of the Evening Standard newspaper. At some stage, every US president tries to end the decades-long conflict between Israel and the Palestinians. It's rare, though, for a Middle East peace plan to emerge as a president faces an impeachment trial in the Senate. Well, Donald Trump's long-delay plan holds out the promise of a Palestinian state, albeit one with only limited sovereignty, but it also appears to give Israel most of what it's been after for decades. Well, Robert, there doesn't seem to be any doubt that the big winner under this plan is Israel. But then again, given Donald Trump's past statements and indeed actions in the region, that's hardly a surprise. No, this this has been signalled well in advance. Um, in some ways, it's typical. He gives with one hand and takes away with the other. $50 billion, which he hopes to get from primarily Saudi Arabia and the Gulf uh, Arab uh, nations, um, whether that will come forward to get things going. And by golly, things do need to be uh, got going. But if you look at the map of the Palestinian entity, and it's not quite the state we thought it was going to be. It's certainly not the state envisaged in the Oslo Accords in the process that started in 1993. They pulled them right back uh, from the River Jordan. Uh, the uh, guarantee for security for Israel is, yes, occupation of the, of, of the Jordan Valley and of more or less, all but a very few outliers, of all the Jewish settlements in occupied territory, they now become sovereign Israel territory. And that's a thing, by the way, that Netanyahu is really going to bite on. Plus, um, uh, they've been given a bit of uh, Upper Galilee. But what has he given the Palestinians? Blobs all over the place, two very curious entities, which would probably prove very quickly unviable if they were ever realized. Two large blobs on the Egyptian border. I don't think Trump really cares whether this is going to be accepted or or, or not. It is pure election politics. First of all, who is he playing to in his own base? And he is playing to a very strong constituency there. He thought on the way he might help his old mate, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, who's up for re-election, but he's up for it. He's going to be indicted. He is being indicted covered his bets because he had the leader of the opposition over to say, well, what do you think about that? 
There's been some quite shrewd footwork by Jared Kushner's team on this. They know this isn't going to happen. It's taken away one of the primary rights that the Palestinians have claimed since 47 and, well, really, 48 with recognition, the first recognition of Israel, and that is the right of return of refugees. So it's what the Italians call a pasticcio, a stew, a pie, but what follow the votes follow the electoral politics, one, of Trump, two, of Benjamin Netanyahu. I mean, Oscar, the Palestinian president's called this a conspiracy deal, said, you know, a thousand times no. I mean, there is this sense, we, we, have, we have been here so many times before, with US presidents announcing Middle East peace plans, sometimes with, with hope that it might achieve something which has been dashed. But there doesn't even seem to be any hope this time. It just seems to be a process we're all going through. Well, you have to be a fool to think this is going to work. But as Robert uh, just told us, uh, this is not designed to work. The aim of this uh, so-called peace process is very different. It's to appeal and perhaps appease also the evangelical electoral basis of Donald Trump in the United States. This is what this is all about. It's all about electoral politics. Yes, he's covering his bases uh, in Israel. This is not even a uh, conspiracy involving uh, the Israeli lobby in the United States. This is purely uh, you know, appealing to the evangelical uh, electoral basis. Trump is worried Trump is worried because Sanders is, is beginning to uh, rise up in the polls and uh, he's worried that uh, uh, the indictment against him might gain some traction. So he's trying to make sure that his evangelical basis, which is the only grassroots basis that uh, the Trump and GOP project has in the United States, buys into this idea that we're now back to the historical slash biblical, uh, you know, contours of the Israeli territory. But of course, uh, uh, this has nothing to do with the Oslo Accords. It has nothing to do with international law. It makes a mockery of international law. And in fact, as many have observed, if put into place, it would uh, uh, mean some sort of uh, apartheid-like uh, uh, entity, uh, as uh, Robert also put it so well. Robert. Fully implemented. I absolutely agree with Oscar. It could be a big risk for Israel because if you're going to occupy, I'm not going to go through the shopping list again, but particularly the Jordan Valley and Upper Galilee, then you're going willy-nilly to get a lot more Arab, your Arabs in and international opinion throughout the region, as well as at the UN, will not allow those to be deprived of citizenship and votes. So there is a risk there. The other thing that to expect uh, Saudi Arabia and the Gulf Cooperation Council as an entity to buy into this is simply whistling in the wind. They will not buy into anything like Hamas, which has, and, uh, which has associations they have to do deals in Gaza with Islamic Jihad, and it has a link to Hezbollah. It's a no, 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 no. And they see the more paranoid in those regimes, I mean, the, 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 the Arab alliance, see the hand of the Muslim Brotherhood, real or not, but they perceive it to be absolutely everywhere. Can I quickly mention, I absolutely agree, I think it's fascinating, the swing vote of the, of the evangelicals. Let's spell it out. The element that Trump and Jared Kushner really understand in this, and they've got a strong presence in their own administration for this, is uh, Christian Zionists. They, like the Jews, it's the first coming of the Messiah in Judaism. It's the second coming of the Messiah for the Christian Zionists. 
oddly, in although we speak English, we are divided, as Oscar Wilde said, by a common language and a common political language between Britain and the British-speaking English world, British-English-speaking world, and America, because this is so strong in America, and you have two powerful exponents, as I said, Vice President Mike Pence and Mike Pompeo, the, uh, the Secretary of State. They really do believe it, and they use the language of that, and Trump is acutely attuned to his base, and he's not going to, he, he, he's not going to, put, to insult or offend these if he can possibly avoid it, and he's avoided it very well up to now. Robert Fox and Oscar Guardiola Rivera, and we'll be back in just a moment. First, though, here's Monocle's Daniel Bates with some of the other stories we've been following today. Thank you, Paul. Hundreds of foreign nationals have been evacuated from the centre of the coronavirus outbreak in China. Australia has announced plans to quarantine its 600 returning citizens on Christmas Island, which lies some 2,000 kilometres off the mainland. Hundreds of UK citizens will also be placed in quarantine. Researchers at the University of Cambridge University have found that dissatisfaction with democracy within developed countries is at its highest level in almost a quarter of a century. The findings are based on the analysis of 4 million people across the world, and we'll hear more on that in a moment. And the Monocle Minute reports on a new logo installation at London's Cold Drops Yards. House of Dots, which is the brainchild of designer Camille Walala, has been assembled using about 2 million Lego tiles and the help of 180 children. You can find out more about this project by signing up to our daily digest at monocle.com minute. Those are some of the headlines we're following. Now back to you, Paul. Daniel, thank you. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Paul Osborne. With me, Oscar Guardiola Rivera and Robert Fox. Now, is anyone really surprised by a survey that reports public dissatisfaction with democracy is at an all-time high? Researchers from Cambridge University have analysed the views of more than 4 million people over a period of 25 years. Overall, close to 60% of them saying they are dissatisfied with democracy, which is the highest level on record. Well, that's the problem with this uh, uh, report and, uh, you know, this uh, argument. We're no longer surprised because we're hearing exactly the same tune. It has become a mantra. And may I dare to say a mantra with very little evidence. Yes, the report, as uh, uh, you know, it, it happens with uh, plenty of academic uh, uh, studies nowadays. Look at reality through the lenses of some polls and statistics and so on and so forth. But if you were, as I did and many have done, to travel around Latin America, and this is important because the report says that, uh, uh, you know, Latin American disconnect with democracy is the future. Well, la- during the last six months, the, the, the latter part of 2019, anyone traveling through anywhere in Latin America would have seen the streets filled with people trying to recover uh, democracy. What they are pissed off with is the mockery of democracy that they have been offered for close to 40 years. I mean, if you ask anyone in the streets of Santiago de Chile in December last year, they would have told you that. What democracy? We have never had proper democracy. This, so- this so-called democracy transition and so on and so forth is just huge inequality. That's what it has meant to people. So people, of course, unsurprisingly, express themselves against that mockery of democracy. That's what they are against. What they do want is more democracy. Call it democracy or call it uh, democratic socialism, as Sanders is doing in the United States. And actually, in that respect, north of the border and south of the border, you have very, very similar tendencies. And that is what is very interesting. A fired up basis, fired up grassroots, trying to find 
other uh, ways, perhaps not the usual institutional ways, to express their desire for democracy because the institutional ways, the legal ways, had been kidnapped by a very, very uh, minoritarian elite. I mean, Robert, there is an argument, isn't there? And I think Oscar was making this here, that it's not the concept of democracy that people are alienated by, it's the practitioners. It's the behaviour and actions of the practitioners. And, And actually... Donald Trump, Brexit, for example, have stirred up levels of public engagement in politics that you you haven't seen for years in terms of the number of political arguments around dinner tables in Britain or people joining protest movements or signing up to campaigns in the United States. For a population that is alienated by democracy, they seem to be more involved in it. I couldn't agree with you more. I think that's a very, very fair summary. What has happened, though, is politics, not democracy, uh, because um, what has affected coloured this attitude, this academic attitude, by the way, I agree with Oscar, reporters would not take the same view. It is a many splendid thing, democracy, and it is very, very different. It doesn't necessarily have to mean parliaments, presidents and parties. That's the problem. There's a huge problem with parties to take America and Britain and even France and to an extent Italy, Germany, the Netherlands, of whom I have some more than a passing acquaintance, the cultish nature of politics, party politics means the parties are beginning to consume themselves rather than get on with the new agenda that they have to deal with. What I think this report, and by the way, it is staggeringly unoriginal and it is staggeringly out of date already um, on, on detail, but what it does tap into is what came up in a Pew report last year on the same thing, It's about optimism and pessimism. And the two drivers of pessimism are the light that failed in the title of a great book by Krasteff and Holmes, in that the promise of a new dawn, a new consensus after the end of the Cold War, that we were going to go into a new consensus of liberal democracy which would pervade the world. By the way, that is the thesis of Francis Fukuyama in the end of history. He doesn't say history has come to an end, but there is a tendency and this will drive globalisation. There's pessimism about globalisation. There's pessimism because we're getting older, we're getting tireder and in the, in the advanced countries and we're using up the resources of bountiful nature. Climate change is a huge driver for scepticism about politics. And in the UK, and I've just been in Italy talking to very ingenious uh, business. Business is way ahead of politics on what innovations have to come with with, with climate change, that you have to go to a different democratic model. And I predict when the Boris Johnson dream collapses in the UK, and I give it uh, the very outward two to two and a half years, we will go to community politics to discuss the aspects of climate environmental change, which are now really beginning to hit us. It isn't just glaciers in Antarctica, which are hugely important, but it's floodplains, weird weather, storms, villages on the coast falling into the sea, and who is going to do anything about it? And certainly the party politics isn't going to do anything about it, and that's where we're going. This is this is very interesting. It's very interesting what Robert just said there. You know, the, if Latin America or the Americas as a whole are showing us a way to the future, is because people there are going back to uh, the community and communitarian basis of politics. You know, 
Take, for, for example, the politicians uh, that are firing at people in the United States, the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortezes. Uh, those people were discovered and or helped by grassroots organizations such as Justice Democrats. The same happens in Latin America. You see loads of grassroots uh, organizations, the people who were in the streets in uh, uh, Colombia cities uh, late last year. And this is why this report is so outdated. It's, it's as if these academic, academics do not uh, go out there. And if you go out there and you talk to, to these people, they'll tell you, well, we, what we want is to make our streets deliberative. So they're actually institutionally creative, but they're taking that uh, creativity back to the community. And that's the future of politics. And that's going to happen in the, in the United Kingdom as well. Robert was very generous. He gave Johnson's dream uh, two years. I think, you know, this year, at the end of this year, we'll see how it begins to collapse. And at that point, they're going to try to give us more emotional victories. Oh, we're taking control back from Brussels. But people are not going to fall for young that people for too long, it. particularly young people. And young people in this country are fired up. They are now perhaps, uh, uh, you know, a bit disenchanted with the, with the fact that their, their, uh, their dream uh, you know, did, not, did not materialize. But they are the future of, of politics. This is something that the Labour Party, for instance, should remember before it makes uh, yet another uh, uh, mistake after its uh, electoral mistake. Look at Italy and you'll see, well, Salvini and those guys, well, they're, they're already being sidelined. And look at... Sal uh, Salvini's look, losing. He's losing. And look at the, the popularity of Bolsonaro and the populist Ivan Duque in Colombia. Ivan Duque, 7 4%. What kind of popularity is that? That's what people are pissed off about. Those are the, the, the statistics that matter. Look at Bolsonaro also falling like crazy. Macri is gone in Argentina. And look at what is happening in the United States. For the first time, there is the, you know, the possibility. It might not reali be, be realized, but there is a possibility of democratic socialism, actually. Yeah, absolutely. That's politics of a, another kind. And that's what we journalists, academics and so on and writers need to be attuned to. Robert. Very quickly, a really contemporary forget. I mean, we're absolutely not only on the same page, in this, on the same paragraph uh, with Oscar in this. In the British Isles, who is the new contemporary leader? It's Leo Varadkar. Leo Varadkar couldn't be where he is but for community politics. And the complexion, the social and political complexion of Ireland has absolutely been radicalised by the pressure of community uh, uh, town, town hall politics. And one of the things that's playing in and out, and I think it's too tricky for just a simple, however extensive survey a focus group can't play with and what we're looking at we were talking about the boris johnson dream and trump and so on is the relationship between social media and politics and representative politics which is the horse to use no fashion metaphor and which is the cart because i think social media has shaped, shaped a, a terrific amount quite insidiously of the debate in uk lately I think it's about to swing round the other way as we get to a new politics where, no, we want things done for people in communities. Well, one of the issues, of course, in that interplay uh, between politicians and the public is uh, the political interviews, the way they are perceived when they Ooh. are being questioned by journalists. Should interviewers perhaps go easier on politicians? Because this seems to be the view of the soon-to-be former head of the BBC. Uh, Lord Hall, Tony Hall, the outgoing Director General, has said the corporation should reconsider its role in political discourse. Specifically, he questions the state of the political interview, the desire to catch out the politician. 
to force them into saying something that they regret. I mean, Robert, there is a gladiatorial sense to a lot of these big political interviews, but... but I'm is trying that... to look at you stone-faced because I, I do think I find this fascinating. I know Lord Hall very well and I, I cut my teeth in the BBC um, all of 51 years ago. Um, the fact is, you're right. Um, it's become a big willy contest now and people shouting at each other. And there are very good interviewers in the BBC and I'm glad to name a name, Evan Davis. Uh, Paul, I want to explore your mind. Why do you have these bizarre views about this, that, and the other? The great interviews that I have known listen very carefully what is being said to, to them. They have their own track running, the tape running in their head of a grid of questions they might or might not um, uh, answer. Because what this absolutely wham, bam, bash, bash interviewing doesn't get, which is why I went out of broadcasting, for instance, into into newspapers and print uh, uh, reporting, is that to do a long interview for the page, you watch. You watch as much as you hear. Now, why did you say that now? You didn't say that five minutes ago, and I know something, and I'm going to probe at it, that you are quite clearly covering something, something up. And the adversarial five-minute... Uh, interview, which is based actually on courtroom technique. It's as if it's Perry Mason, I'm really showing my age, or advocacy in in, in the court really, really uh, uh, d- doesn't work. It's extremely narcissistic and it's very, very unproductive. And you have got to have, you know, there's monologue, orders, and funny enough, in in the whole spectrum of speech, dialogue and debate. And that's where Tony Hall really does have a point, because the debate element of getting a synthesis of really finding out what happened um, is, 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 is absent. The BBC went wrong, but others on the confessional. They wanted Richard Nixon to break down in front of David Frost and say, put my hand up, I did wrong. That really, really happens because most of most politicians, he or her or in between, are there for their own survival. Now, Oscar, one of the problems, though, presumably, is, you know, what Robert is effectively arguing for is the old fashioned 30 minute, well-researched, structured, respectful, lengthy interview where you can explore these issues you calmly in depth. You don't have to be groveling. But we now are in a culture where it is driven by 20-second soundbites and by prompting outrage on social media. And, and the BBC, under Tony Hall, has embraced that, has, in, you know, has turned its question-and-answer programme into, into a sort of bear pit. I mean, is there even a public willingness to sit down and listen to a sensible conversation well, between me, a journalist and me, a politician? Let, <laughs> let, me, let me answer by providing a counter-example to this... Uh, 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 peculiar argument, which has become a mantra, according to which n- there is no uh, audience for the well-structured, it might be old-fashioned, but actually it's a well-structured, well-prepared interview. If you look at what young people are, uh, you know, where they're getting their, their news and their uh, uh, political interviews, well, they're uh, they're going to, uh, uh, you know, uh, platforms such as Novara Media. What yeah. is the format of Novara Media? 
well-structured, long uh, interviews with, you know, one hour, two hour, no sound bites. Uh, and you see the same in, in North America. Let me, let me just, uh, uh, you know, name two names, two very good journalists who are doing their job very well in the Americas. Glenn Greenwald, mm -hmm. Max Blumenthal. Uh, what do they, they are doing their, their job outside of the mainstream media? There, there is there is a lesson there, perhaps, but also they're doing and they're doing so in social media. What do they do? The old-fashioned, very well-structured, research-led, uh, and so on. And they get scoops, scoops that actually, you know, rather than using this uh, Hollywood-esque reality TV-like format, which is not only tiresome, but also incredibly politically paralyzing, trying to, to you know, this call-out culture, trying to catch your politician in the lie and confess, uh, you know, out with his beating heart. That kind of sentimentalism has nothing to do with good journalism, and, and less so with the truth. It has too much to do with very bad uh, melodramatic yeah, yeah. theatrics. And that's uh, that's what where, where the BBC, in its current form, and others have gone totally wrong. It's not just the BBC. Having, having condemned the soundbite culture and the clock watching, I, watching the clock We've has had a now bring this to a close. Though, but it's been civilised and courteous. Uh, so thank you very much to Robert Fox and to Oscar Guardiola-Rivera for coming in. In a moment, we'll hear a little bit more about how Brexit is impacting the world of fashion. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Paul Osborne. Finally today, Brexit week is upon us. Monocle's fashion editor, Jamie Waters, considers how brands, big and small, are preparing for the change. The notion of closing borders is totally at odds with the melting pot that is the British fashion industry, fuelled as it is by designers and makers from myriad cultural backgrounds. Indeed, few British industries are as deeply tied to the European continent. But there are important, potentially devastating economic factors at play here too. The fashion industry is pushing for a comprehensive EU trade deal to be negotiated that would avoid tariffs on goods. The British Fashion Council has estimated that a no-deal exit, switching from EU to World Trade Organisation rules, would cost the UK fashion industry between 850 million and 900 million euros annually due to export and import tariffs on raw materials and finished products. When you consider the shoestring budgets that small brands are playing with, such tariffs could be the difference between staying afloat and going bust. Some brands have already taken practical measures to mitigate things. Studio Nicholson, a London-based label with a big customer base in Japan, has opened a warehouse in Portugal to house its Europe-made stock so that it needn't touch down in the UK at all. There's an argument that Brexit could encourage UK brands to produce locally. The idea of bolstering homegrown manufacturing is appealing, and Britain still has some great factories, especially for knitwear. But whether our factories, much depleted in recent decades as so many brands have offshored production to cheaper destinations, are capable of taking on a big influx of orders is another matter. Patrick Grant, the creative director of British brands including eTorts and Community Clothing, says... Until we know what our trade deal is with Europe, it's hard to comment on the possible threats or opportunities that our separation from the EU will bring. But what I do know, he continues, is that fashion's long-established supply chains stretch across Europe, and if we are to stand the best chance of seeing benefits, then we need open borders for goods. 
Jamie Waters there, and that's it for today's programme. Monocle's House View was produced by Daniel Bates, our studio managers Louis Allen and Christy Evans. At 2000 London time, a new edition of The Entrepreneurs, and Monocle's House View returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800, here in the UK. For now, though, from me, Paul Osborne, thanks for listening, and goodbye.